This is an Equity Beats Media podcast. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, It's a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for the next installment of our interview series. We've had some big names recently, and we've got another big and exciting name today. We do. Very much looking forward to this. So we'll, we'll jump straight into it. Our guest today has a Master of Applied Finance from Macquarie University, a Bachelor of Law from Southampton University. Originating from Yorkshire, England, but now living in Melbourne, he started his career in institutional stockbroking back in London in 1982 and has been a stockbroker for 38 years before, I guess, feeling a bit frustrated with the ignorance of investors towards the industry, which is led him to create Marcus Today, which is an insightful, honest, straight-up independent stock market research and insights newsletter. So without further ado, it's our pleasure to introduce Marcus Padley to the show. Thanks for joining us, Marcus. My pleasure, guys. Mates, equity mates. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so Marcus, we're, we're keen to unpack some of that background and get some of your thoughts on markets and investing today. But before we do, we like to start these interviews with a bit of a game just to get a sense on how you're thinking about markets and investing and some key indexes at a time like this. So the game's called Overrated or Underrated. We'll throw something out and we'll get your opinion on whether it's overrated or underrated. Are you up for playing? Overrated or overpriced? Yeah, it's a good it's a good call out that uh, a few guests have made. It, it probably could be overvalued or undervalued. I'll redefine the question yeah. as every uh, Trevor it's a very interview does. But let's not overemphasize yeah. the importance of this. Yeah. All right. To kick it off, we'll start with an Australian index, overrated or underrated, the ASX 200. Overrated as an index, it's about stocks and sectors, not indexes. Interesting. So then I assume that would flow through to overrated, underrated, the S&P 500? Always overpriced. At the top of the market, they had $27 trillion worth of stocks priced at 23 and a half times. If you were to go into the real world and offer any businessman 23 and a half times his last year's earnings for his business, you would get hit in the rush to accept that offer. <laughs> and yet you've got $27 trillion worth of stocks in the US trading on a P of 23 and a half times, which tells you a lot of stocks are priced not on earnings, they're priced on hope and uh, databases and future earnings. And uh, yeah, always overpriced. E- even after the correction, you've still got $23 trillion worth of stocks on 21 times. It's still mm-hmm. a fantasy multiple. So I think that indicates your answer to the next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Overrated or underrated index investing? Massively overrated, overmarketed. Uh, it's not the eighth wonder of the world. It's just a very standard vehicle to get an average return. It does what it says on the box. And any of those index investing products like ETFs that start to stray from providing you with a passive investment over a particular index commodity, whatever, is dangerous. They've stepped beyond their level of competence, some of those ETFs. 
So, Marcus, you've probably just lost 98% of our audience. Um, with <laughs> well, they, they, they all hold ETFs, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it's um, something yeah, no, that is it, of high interest. <laughs> it's absolutely fine. If you want to hold an index or whatever, that's absolutely fine. But they're being marketed as being something special. They do what they, they say on the box. And, and for millennials, the beautiful thing you've got is a – what, 35-year run-up on super. Super is a marvellous structure. It stops you spending the money you earn on your investments. So it compounds. So it's, And that's what Keating designed it to do. And an ETF, why would you as a millennial be buggering about in individual stocks and all the stress and stupidity and risk and blow-ups when you can just buy an ETF and if you've got a 35-year runway, which some of you guys have, the average return for the market is 5.77% plus dividends 4.5% plus a bit of franking takes it up another percent or so. You can get If you can get a 10% return for the next 35 years in super out of an ETF over an index, brilliant. But as soon as these ETFs start to get smart, uh, like there are some which uh, you can always tell when a fad's going to end, they create an ETF to cover it. So whether whether it's uh, whether it's uh, you know the desire for high income or for for higher yielding bonds, and you've got these unsophisticated plonkers who write these algorithms or Excel spreadsheet. An algorithm is a big bloody word for an Excel spreadsheet formula, right? And someone will write this uh, ridiculously uninformed algorithm to try and get you a ten percent yield out of equities. And all they're doing is destroying your capital. I will guarantee any of your listeners a 50% yield. If you give me a dollar, I'll guarantee you a 50% yield for two wow. years. For two <laughs> years. <laughs> At the end of that, it's worth nothing. But that is what some of these ETFs are doing. They're just paying you back your capital. The message is stick with the obvious passive ones, the ones that have got some marketing theme behind them who are doing something active, just don't even, don't even bother them. So we'll unpack that a little bit later on, but yeah, we'll continue not. with the game sorry, now. Sorry, rant. I am a ranter. No, no, I like no, it. I like fine. it. <laughs> We've had Henry on the show who, Henry Jennings, our audience, you know, they, they also yeah, love yeah. that episode and had a great time. And, you know, he's also a bit of a rant, rambler. <laughs> yeah, he's not quite as ranty as me though. He's mellow. That's a, decades of drugs have done that to him. <laughs> overrated or underrated the financial media news cycle? Possibly overrated because everybody watches it, thinks they're going to find some news. It's reactive. It's always too late. It doesn't have a lot of value in it. It's an entertainment. As two people that are cutting their teeth in financial entertainment, it's... You know, it's, <laughs> we think it's fairly rated, shall we say? <laughs> oh, no, 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 you know, if you sit as we do with the, uh, it's just a, it's a bit of entertainment. Sit with CNBC. What is CNBC talking about today? They're talking about the bounce in the oil price or whatever's just happened. By the time they're talking about it, it's in the price. Then you're not going to make any money mm-hmm. listening yeah. to it. So you might as well be entertained. So stick someone on who's fun, who's got a stupid hairstyle a 1980s suit and a bow tie, you know, (laughs) that entertained me. But don't think for a moment that you need to listen to that drool 24 (laughs) hours a day to make money. It's the baseline of what's already happened is already in the price. So it's not, it's Mm. not going to make you any money. 
Now, Marcus, this next one has caused a bit of interest in our community recently since our Sydney live show where we had a few experts, including Henry, talk about this concept and talk about using it while you're young. So overrated or underrated leverage in your investing portfolio? Brilliant if you get it right. That makes Hard sense. To do. <laughs> now, there you go. And that's the point. A lot of people don't know what they're doing uh, in the stock market. For instance, with the market down where it is, I can see a million opportunities around. This is the time to leverage up. You always do the opposite of what is logical. Oh, the market's horrendous. The headlines are terrible. That's the time you take a margin loan out. (laughs) You don't take a margin loan out when everyone's driving Porsches and mobile phone salesmen are highly paid hedge fund managers. You know, that's not when you take a margin loan out. You take a margin loan out when you're down to shotguns and barbed wire and baked beans. (laughs) And that's sort of where we are. So now you take a margin loan out because your odds are a bit better of getting the, the major tide right. What does a hedge fund do? Well, it basically borrows money. And they're people who think they know what they're doing and they take a, a punt and leverage it up. And uh, that's what people who know what they're doing do. And so I would say to you, if you are the average mug punter who is pretty uncertain about how this whole thing works and what you should be doing, Don't go near leverage. When you're a smart, know what you're doing, confident in your process, keep getting it right, think you've got an edge, get yourself a margin loan, but don't otherwise. We might change the title of this episode to Marcus's 1 million opportunity ideas and just get you to list them out for the next couple of hours. (laughs) (laughs) To close out the game, overrated or underrated diversification? Massively overrated. It is an unimaginative financial cop-out promoted by people who this whole industry is about doing administration and pretending you're adding value. If you look at the industry funds that run billions, they now have spent lots of money on these very great websites, which allow you to go into the back end and choose what your asset allocation is, conservative, balanced, cash, aggressive, whatever it is. What they are doing these days is earning millions. And the way they some of the events these, these companies have, that's your money. When you see this advertising and all the rest of it, all they're doing these days is administering your exposure to the stock market, which is a service, which is a valuable, valuable service, in, uh, and it's in a trustable way. But they're still charging fees that imply some sort of value add as if a fund manager's there watching your money and making decisions. We need to be in oil, out of oil. We need to be into infrastructure, out of it. Most of them are, if you look at the top 25 funds over the last five or 10 years, you can go to the Money Magazine and look at that. There's 2% between them per annum, and they're all doing the same thing. And the, the incredibly laughable to me thing is they've now provided you a website where you do the asset <laughs> allocation. I mean, bloody hell, pay me 1%, dickheads. You know? <laughs> and here you are with them running billions and billions and driving their BMWs and having their big splash parties. And all they really end up being at the end of the day is administrative platforms. Very valuable, very useful. You need to know your money's trusted. You need a government structure and a structure they've got to make sure that they're trustable, your money doesn't disappear, all that sort of thing. You know, they've taken the cowboy out of it. But what they have done is they're still, in some cases, 
charging fees which suggest you're actively managed when they're not. So diversification is something that is promoted by people who want to pretend that's how it's done because they're not adding any value. So you've got a, a huge groups of money managers who are not adding any value, and then there are these people who live and die by performance. And yeah, I'm one of those. You can name a, a whole host of boutique fund managers, but diversification is for the people who want to pretend that this is the sensible way everyone does it. It's not. You can get average for next to nothing these days, and that's what diversification is. So it's a concept to dumb down the herds and the billions <laughs> uh, to make, mm. make it look like that this is clever stuff when, in fact, there's nothing happening. Now, Marcus, Bryce did say that was going to be the last one, but I've loved listening to your opinion on some of these things. So I'm going to throw one more into the mix. Yeah. Overrated or underrated Bitcoin? A hilarious joke and a great way to play the herd. No integrity. <laughs> nice. So Marcus, before we jump into a bit about Marcus today and some broader market themes going on, we'd like to just understand a bit more about your background. So are you able to tell us the story of your first investment and perhaps some of the major lessons, if there were any, that you took from that that have shaped how you invest today? I won't give you first investment. I'll give you a most recent bloody mess I made trying to look after money, which was in the correction in 2018. And this this is a, a lesson everyone should know. In 2018, the market fell 15%. My fund fell 23%. It destroyed me. And December the 24th, there I am sitting about to go on holiday with a family and the fund's down 23%. The market's down 15%. I've underperformed by 8%. And I had to work out why. And the lesson, the great lesson in hindsight was I had done the right thing. I'd gone to 67% cash in my fund, which people rarely do, can't do, aren't mandated to do, but I can do. And the market fell over. I looked brilliant for a, a couple of weeks and then I got reinvested and, and took the second and third leg down. The lesson was when I got back in, I thought, I'll be okay. I'm in CSL, Aristocrat Leisure, Treasury Wine Estates, Cochlear. I was in all these quality stocks, ResMed, that I knew would see me through in the end. But what happened was that they massively underperformed because they were high PE stocks coming off a market high, and they massively underperformed. They underperformed by 35 to 45%, underperformed the market, and dragged my performance down. And yet I was in quality stocks, entirely defensible. And the lesson from all that, I don't want to let my secret herbs and spices out, but the no, 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 the, do let us know. The, <laughs> the lesson from all that is that there are moments where you have to look up from the trees and notice the whole wood is on the move, and you have to focus on your asset allocation. Which for for a millennial is, am I in the market, out of the market, hundred percent cash, or you're either a hundred percent cash or a hundred percent in. Yeah, and you don't have to make these decisions, but once in a decade, or maybe once a year, or once every three years, to get out and then get back in, and you have to protect yourself, like in the Corona crash here. And the experience from 2018 taught me. Sometimes you just got to go, forget what bloody stock I'm in. It's not relevant what quality it is or how much, what their sales numbers are or anything like this. You've got to look up and go, get that out of the market. That's the lesson I would tell your guys is that sometimes you just got to press cash on your industry fund or your ETF. You've just got to sell it and then get back in later on because the market takes control sometimes and the stocks are irrelevant. 
So Marcus, as Bryce said in the intro, you did 38 years as a stockbroker. You run Marcus today. You mentioned there that you held a bunch of quality stocks, but I guess from your time in the markets, have you developed an overall investing philosophy? Yes, of course. Uh, there are all sorts of elements to it. What could I tell you about it? These are my uh, secret herbs and spices, so I'll keep it general. Play the herd, don't be the herd. I have to pick up some of my colleagues on this occasionally. When you see headlines about coronavirus, for instance, they will join the herd and start telling you about how terrible it is and how many hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. Or when the oil price falls over, oh, you know, this is disastrous. There's too much oil. There's oil everywhere. And they'll send you pictures of oil flooding out of something. You can't be in the herd and make decent decisions. The real money is made out of exploiting the herd. And you won't do that by being part of it. So one element of the investment philosophy is nod, listen, prompt for for information, but don't bother passing an opinion. You don't want an opinion. What you're doing is watching everybody else and the moments of losing their heads and exploiting that. So part of the investment philosophy is having no opinion and watching everyone else. And the moment people form an opinion... If you say, oh, he's a bull, oh, he's a bear. Well, he's not, he's an idiot. If he runs money, he's an idiot because you can't afford to have a set view, I'm a bull or a bear. And there would be 95% of people who claim to run funds or invest make this mistake of thinking they've got to guess about the future. No, they don't. Uh, What you've got to do is watch the herd and exploit them and try and pick the pivot points where the, the whole sentiment on the market would be one major decision or then individual stocks changes. And you have to know whether you're dealing with a volatile, fast moving market. There are only certain times you have to worry about the market. This has obviously been one of them in this recent period where it moves fast and you have to act fast. But it's the same for stocks as well. There are some stocks, say, take an afterpay to use an unimaginative example. It's a fast moving stock, not a lot of liquidity, a lot of institutional interest, and it moves fast. You have to know you're in a fast moving stock and you then have to pick the pivot points, not be faithful, not say, I love afterpay forever. You've got to pick the tops and pick the bottoms. For instance, the day the uh, regulator said we're going to have a look at buy now, pay later, uh, you know, mark the top for two or three months. The, the thing fell 40%. What are you going to do? I'm going to be, oh, no, I'm an afterpay faithful. I think it's longer. You know, this is a game to make money. It's not a game to get faithful about stocks. The only people that can do it the Warren Buffett way are people so rich they can take the bits where the market falls over. And the only people that can do that are the people who don't have mortgages, don't have kids at school, don't have any financial responsibilities, have everything paid off and are worth billions. Well, of course, Warren Buffett can shut the market for 10 years and not worry about it, but we can't. So we have to pick the tops and the bottoms and we have to do some timing and you have to learn how to do that. Sorry, wittering on. <laughs> Not so good. I, I can't let it all out, but uh, <laughs> there, there is, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot to learn. It's not easy. It is hard. And I would say to any of the millennials out there, your jobs make the money. Don't invest the money. If you want to invest the money, stick it in a 35-year runway in an ETF if that's where you want to put it over the US. Or you know, why would you be in Australia <laughs> when you've got the US market in the US market or in the Australian market or something? And, and go out and make your money. 
don't you know save it the market is for looking after money it's not for making money looking after money put your money in there look after it and go and make it somewhere else that's the what millennials i think should be doing is recognizing this fabulous 35 year compounding runway you've got keep chunking the money in but that's not where you're going to get rich you're going to get rich doing whatever you do so Marcus, you were Stockbrokers Association tipster of the year in 2008. And we're wondering what were your big tips that actually landed you that award, particularly given what was going on at the time? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There I am a bit famous for this and it is rather hilarious that my tip was the first person ever to put cash down. <laughs> there you go everyone's trying to pick crap.com you know and marcus put down cash and blew them all away <laughs> so that was it i was actually famous for selling in december 2007 right at the top of the market and uh, and everyone thinks i'm brilliant for that and i sat writing a newsletter for a year with no stocks and this sort of thing is only so so much patience people can have but the, the business survived. But the reason I'd sold is because I'd been on holiday in 2001 with my wife and two young kids, and it was 9-11, and an aeroplane hit a building, and I had a client who held 85 grand's worth of Qantas warrants, and the bugger walked away from, from the deal without settling because you have three days to settle. And uh, I thought, oh, I'm okay. I don't hold any uh, particular stocks and this sort of stuff. Turned out I had an 85 grand hole in my pocket, which was okay, except it was three times what I earned at the time. And my wife said to me, if you ever, ever, and I ruined this holiday because I was on a mobile phone the whole time and <laughs> stressed. And, and my wife said, if you ever, ever bring your job on holiday again, I'll leave you or don't bother coming, I think is what she, she said. So in December 2007, I went on holiday, Christmas holiday with Emma. And how many kids do I have then? Three or four? And thought I'd better sell everything. So I wrote about it in the newsletter. So I didn't have to worry about anything on holiday. Wrote about it in the newsletter. Went on holiday. Came back. The whole market was collapsing. And and so I made a big fuss about the fact I'd sold everything at the top. It wasn't, wasn't done out of judgment. It was done out of fear of Emma. But there you go. You've got to, you've got to make the most of whatever breaks you get. So did you have any inkling that things were going to go wrong in 2008? Or was it purely to just have a good holiday? No, it was purely to have a good holiday, but uh, there, there, were, there were always things in hindsight, and I think I was working at Patterson's, and Patterson's put their, this is a second-tier broker in WA, put their name on Subiaco. You know, there are things you look back and you go, ah, <laughs> oh, that was the top. You know, <laughs> stockbroker naming Subiaco Oval. There were, there were also three stockbrokers at the time that year, who listed, no one lists a stockbroker. Stockbrokers are like accountants and lawyers. Anything that's run as a partnership, you never get any money out of it because the, the directors and the partners all carve it all up before it gets to shareholders. And they're not naturally companies that you'd list, but three of them listed in 2007. Who says brokers can't time the market? They all <laughs> listed at around two bucks and ended up below 20 cents. 
you know, thank you very much. Uh, so there were signs in hindsight that things were wrong. But no, I don't think any of us really foresaw the GFC. And that was the amazing thing about it is the kings and queens and central bankers, brokers, financial planners, accountants, even the taxi drivers didn't predict the GFC. You have to register that, that things happen in the market that you can't predict. And consequently, you, you have to have an open mind and you have to be prepared to react is far more useful than thinking you have to predict. Well, speaking of reaction, no one obviously saw the, the COVID-19 coming the way it did, but I'm interested to know how you were sort of feeling about the markets, I guess, just before COVID did what it did, and how did you react to it? Well, do you know what we did? No. Oh, okay. I'm about to find out. <laughs> no, you are, because, you know, I, I'm going to talk myself up, but we absolutely bloody nailed it. <laughs> and we have outperformed by over 20% in six weeks. Some fund managers will celebrate 1% outperformance during a year. We have outperformed by over 20% in the last six weeks. And this is with $40 million. We've effectively saved our investors $8 million of real money. I don't need to let all my bloody secrets out. But <laughs> the way we did it was last year, we actually cashed up. If you remember the over trade talks, trade talks looked like they could cause a precipitous collapse in the markets. And the Chinese delegation was in Washington and they said, we're not going to go and see the farmers. And it looked like all the trade talks were going to fold up. The market had dropped quite savagely twice. It had dropped two or 3% in a night. And that's a sign to someone like myself things are going wrong, this is correction, start fast, this is a precipitous moment, and we went to 100% cash. No one does that. <laughs> we went to 100% cash, and then a week later, you know what happens? It turns into, a, remember, it turned into a love fest. <laughs> oh, really? You know, one minute we're on the point of collapse, the next they've got a trade talk love fest. I suppose that's, that's uh, <laughs> dealing with Trump, isn't it? You never know what the bloody hell you're going to get the next day, which is good. It's entertaining. But we had to get reinvested again. But we were ready to sell. And the reason we were ready to sell because we could see the overpriced market. We could see the US market trading on 23 and a half times with $27 trillion worth of stocks. And we could see all sorts of other things that were potentially folding up. Bond yields were telling you that the outlook for the economy was awful. Remember, you know, inverted yield curves and all this sort of stuff. And there was a list of things. And so we went to 100% cash because we saw a precipitous moment. And that actually taught us that we may get it wrong, but we're still, we're still going to be right sometime. And I remember my accountant saying to me, it's coming. It's coming in one of my meetings with him as we tried to hide billions from the taxman. And uh, we didn't. Don't chase me around, taxman. <laughs> Even the accountant, like the taxi driver, was saying, it's coming, it's coming, the correction he meant. And when uh, the COVID-19 thing, everyone ignored it for a while. And then it, then the Italy, uh, South Korea started and, and the market started precipitously fall. And we saw those two big down days and we went, right, we're 40% cash. And within two days, we were 70% cash and we rode that down. And the reason wasn't a view on coronavirus. The reason was knowing the market's overpriced and then watching the start of a precipitous correction and then reacting. And that's what you've got to do. And we're now, we're very aware of these uh, precipitous moments being set up and then wait for them to happen. And it's the same as the 87 crash. We were in the 87 crash. Everyone says, what started the 87 crash? I'll tell you what started the 87 crash. It was the 100% rise in the market in the year ahead of the 87 crash. That's what started. <laughs> the first stock that gets sold, you know, everyone goes to analyze the first drop of a waterfall. So why did that start? No, irrelevant. There's a whole load of water up at a big height and massive pressure. That's why the waterfall started. That's why the dam broke. 
And in the same way, it's not what causes the break. So the coronavirus was the excuse. You can't get that right by assessing coronavirus. It's going to be this. What you're actually doing is looking at the herd suddenly getting seriously fearful from a position of high prices. And that's that's how we reacted. And at the bottom, we did the opposite. We just noticed everybody is absolutely Armageddon obsessed. End of the world. There's got to be a moment here. And then the market popped for one day, two days, and we went 100% back in and uh, absolutely timed the living daylights out of it recently. And this is the point. You've got to watch these pivot points on fast-moving things. And when the market's fast-moving, you've got all stocks out, all stocks in. When it's one stock, one stock out, one stock in. But these pivot points are very important. And it comes from watching the herd, not doing fundamental analysis that it's cheap, but it's knowing you're vulnerable to overdoing it in both ends. So, sorry, witchering on again. <laughs> no, it's great. We're trying to get all your secret herbs and spices. So, we'll, uh, <laughs> we, we want you to Let keep uh, explaining it all. <laughs> right. I'm interested in unpacking something you just said there, though. So, you were saying that the market was long term overvalued or overvalued in relation to its long-term average. And that was a key reason why it fell, even if coronavirus was sort of the you know the big news story that potentially catalyzed it. If you look at how much it fell and the fact that it's recovered so much and it's still trading you know, well above its long-term average value, do you think that this recent market rise was a bit of a bull trap and there's further to fall? Or how are you thinking about the market now and how are you positioning yourself? Even though the US may be overpriced, it's been permanently overpriced. So it's not a question of the US market being now overpriced again. And so you must sell it or anything like that because it can lose its head again. You know, look who's running the country. This is marketing. It's not price. Anyway, no, I don't think it's a bull trap. We've recently cashed up to 40% again in the last two weeks just because we saw the market turning over. And we do scans of the market. And, and when you see 10% of the all ordinaries has sell signals on it in the morning, you realize that and, and you've got a sell signal on the market itself, you go, oh, maybe we'll just cash up. And you cash up not because you're worried about losing money, you cash up because you want to have a load of cash ready to buy stuff if when it bottoms again. The volatility is settling down. So I don't imagine we'll do this big asset allocation stuff much anymore. We're doing it at the moment, but that'll settle down. We'll get back to stock picking. And as far as the general overview, I would say to you, for to get back to March 23rd, the low, something really bad's got to happen because that was all out panic. And uh, we're not going to lose our heads like that unless something we really can't see at the moment uh, happens. And we don't have to worry about that until it happens. So for the moment, no, I think we've probably seen the bottom. On that basis, I think we, uh, although it, it, we're not in the business of making a long-term grand prediction, no one could do that. We'll wake up in the morning, we have a, a morning meeting, and the bright blokes I work with and girls, we come up with a conclusion. But we wake up every morning, make decisions. At the moment, our decision is 40% cash, looking to buy again. If you were to ask me to guess, I would guess that we are seeing one of the once-in-a-decade buying opportunities at the moment. Yeah, certainly March 23rd was. Hopefully we'll get another one. It'd be nice if everybody got in a panic again. Maybe <laughs> coronavirus will you know, recur or something. But at the moment, it looks like the market is assuming coronavirus is going to be defeated. In two months' time, we're going to be back in the office, if not in a month. I'm going to be giving a speech at our end of financial year party talking about how fabulous it is to be back at work. I'll be lying. <laughs> and what lovely people I work with, more lies. 
And uh, <laughs> no, they're all fabulous. And by then, all this, uh, the market will have bottomed. You see what I mean? You can't wait. You've got to be ahead of the headlines and ahead of where we're going to be. And, and just look out. We're going to get on top of coronavirus, clearly, and we're going to be back to work. We're going to be in traffic jams. We're going to be booking out, not being able to book restaurants because everyone's dying to get back in. We're going to be watching Top Gun 2 in a crowded cinema. It's all going to happen in the next two or three months. At the moment, we're still fearful. So I think we've seen the bottom. If I'm, It's a guess. It, it may be wrong. And we'll change our minds if we wake up in the morning and find we're wrong. But at the moment, if I was to guess, I'd say we've probably seen the bottom. We're going to come out of this, and this is a long-term buying opportunity. So there's a lot of chat in our community at the moment about people worried that they've missed the bottom and then also in the same breath fearful that there might be another further drop to come. So they're kind of confused or a bit cautious about when to enter the market. What would your advice be for them? They clearly don't know what they're doing. <laughs> the idea that you have missed the bottom, it's irrelevant where the market's been. It's a question of uh, what, what, you're going to have regret? That's an emotion. You know, you need to be Spock. You can't have regret and be an investor. Oh, I missed the bottom. Oh, what are you going to do? Oh, wait, wait till we get down there again. You'll, you'll never put any money. Just irrelevant things. It's called anchoring, where you probably know that, but where you look at previous prices and go, oh, it would be nice if, but it's gone. So you're only left with what you've got now and you have to make decisions on that. Fearful it might fall over. Well, go with the trend. The trend is, well, short term, it's down again. But uh, when the volatility drops off again and the, and the confidence starts to build and the trend builds again, get invested because we're still way off the top and it's about running with what you've got in front of you at the moment and looks like the bigger trend will be up if we can just time this little sell-off we're having at the moment the bigger trend looks like it'll be up wake up every day and assess that don't look back at march 23rd and go i've missed the bottom don't look ahead at something unguessable and go oh i'm fearful the market fall over when the trend's up go with it and when the market starts to fall over, wake up in the morning, make decisions, go, oh, it's falling over, falling over. And when your spreadsheet has, or your ComSec account or whatever you've got has poked you in the chest five days on the trot going, idiot, 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 you're getting it wrong, do something about it. So it's not a question of guessing the future or regretting the past. It's a question of looking at the cards you've got in your hand at the moment and playing them. And uh, at the moment, our cards would say, Short term, we're, we're, we don't want to be buying, but we're looking to buy. We think the next turn up, we'll get fully invested again. So Marcus, you said in that answer that the, the long-term trend is up. And if you really broaden out your time horizon, you know, over multiple years or over decades even, the long-term trend is definitely up. But you have some pretty strong thoughts on buy and hold investing. So I'm interested if you can share those thoughts and then we can unpack them from there. Buy and hold is blinkered bullshit, <laughs> born out of you know buying the intelligent investor, or as I call it, the unintelligent investor book written in 1954 and believing that's how it's done. <laughs> that's uh, not how it's done. You can't buy and hold. The only stocks that you buy and hold are the ones that people tell you about in hindsight because it worked, but they don't tell you about ABC Learning and Babcock and Brown that were buy and hold, each their own, right? Managing funds is 99% marketing for most of these people. So they will tell you about their philosophy and their highbrow stock analysis and how they pick stocks and give you examples and this sort of thing. But at the end of the day, this game is about making money out of the market and however you do that, each to their own. I do it my way. 
my way is having an open mind at all times about every stock price that we're dealing with. It's not about forming a fundamental opinion about a particular stock and assuming that that is going to persist for 10 years or 20 years. That is arrogance in the extreme. You have to do the research. You have to do the work. You have to understand that's a, that's a baseline. That's minimum. You have to do the research to understand what you're putting your money into. And maybe you decide to buy it. And this is what fund managers do. They've got analysts pay two, dollars $300,000 to go and look at one stock after pay for a month and decide to buy it. All they're really doing is saying on the facts in front of us at the moment, this looks like we should buy it. Looks like the, it's going to grow and the price will go up and it, or it's undervalued or something like that. And that is absolutely fine to do that on the understanding that tomorrow that may change. And that's where buy and hold gets it wrong. It assumes the research done on a particular date in the past persists. It may not. It may change. You talk to the CEO of Afterpay and he will have 10 things in his head that no investor knows that could come off, may not come off, are risky, not risky, are disastrous or hilariously fantastic. And they're in his head. You don't know what they are, but they will reveal themselves over time and you have to be prepared to change. So buy and hold is just an absurd, unintelligent concept used by people who are trying to probably sell you their skills as investors. And it only works in hindsight where you look back and with the benefit of hindsight and pick out the ones that are winners. But it's just a ridiculous concept that you should expect to buy and hold. You should do your best to, to buy cheap or buy at the right time or buy when it's undervalued. Why wouldn't you? But it's all about narrowing the probabilities. It's not about prediction and tomorrow's going to be a different day. And you have to have an open mind to whatever you worked out changing. Yeah, I think that's a really good explanation. And I think it's an important distinction that a lot of people when they're starting out get wrong that buy and hold isn't set and forget. It's not, as you said, you do the research when you buy it and then you're not interested in the stock. It's not like Warren Buffett bought Coca-Cola in the 50s and hasn't checked their annual report since. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think that's a good clarification. I think in a quote that we have from you is, it shouldn't be set and forget, it should be set and watch like a hawk. But unfortunately, it, it doesn't rhyme. So no, no one says that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I like sell in May and go away. You know, uh, sell in June and... Oh, I feel like a prune. You know, it didn't rhyme. It didn't rhyme or use May. Actually, selling May and go away is statistically correct, I have to tell you, but only in hindsight. But the thing about um, having to watch like a hawk or whatever is is uh, another message to people that do want to invest, if it is the millennials, which this is work. Set and forget is trying to pretend to you it's not work. This is work. And unless you love it, don't bother with it, really. Don't bother with it. Go off and make your millions doing something else. Yes, superannuation. Yes, compounding returns. Yes, chunking money into super where you can't touch it and having faith that it's going to compound at the same historic rates it's done in the past. That's fine. But when it comes to stock picking, no, it's not about buying after pay and forgetting about it. That takes vigilance, takes work. And you'll only do that if you enjoy it. There's no party going on here, no money-making party going on here that's easy to access. It's, it's all hard work. Some people love that fabulous hobby. can be uh, a great social thing as well, as you guys are turning it into a social thing, which is brilliant. People love listening to your stuff and love being interested in the stock market. That's brilliant. But if you're doing it out of necessity or because you need money, nah. Yeah, this, is, this requires effort. 
So, Mark, has given strong opinions on the buy and hold and also ETFs and diversification. If you were to tell a 22-year-old who's just starting in the markets now what the key pillars of an investment portfolio are, what would you say? This is assuming, when you say portfolio, this is assuming that they're going to have, what, 20 stocks or something. Is that what you mean? Well, yeah, like if someone was to come to you and be like, how should I think about constructing a portfolio given I'm 22 years old? what would sort of be some basics that they might need to at least understand before doing so? I would say to them, find your own path. There are too many people who will tell you, I'll tell you how I do it. And you may adopt that, oh, that's how I'll do it as well. But you don't know what I know and you don't have the systems I use and have the routines I've got and all that sort of thing. So the advice I would say is find your own path, find what works and don't do it out of emulation of anybody else. Work your own way out because you'll only believe it if you've found it out, not if you've been told. So find it out. And what I would say to you is uh, start small, (laughs) start on paper (laughs) if you want to. But for younger people, I really would say you've got this fabulous 30, 35 year run up on super. Keep chunking money in there. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with those industry funds, despite the fact that I've sort of criticised their lack of activity. That's fine. Uh, Keep chunking the money in. It doesn't matter which one either, I don't think. Just keep chunking the money in because it will grow. You assume we're not going to have a 35-year Armageddon. But (laughs) if history repeats, it it will grow and that will serve you very, very well. And that's a run-up most of us didn't have or don't have anymore. So do that. But if you're going to do stock picking, perhaps what I would say is keep an open mind, do your own thing and be open to all approaches. We use everything, everything that works, anything that looks intelligent, be it a mix of technical or fundamental. We definitely use both in a big way. And it's all good. There are no shortcuts. Use everything, but work it out for yourself. Even note it down. Oh, I think this works. I think that works. And keep working it out for yourself. We've got a a client who tells, and you can read this on our website, or I can make it available to you guys, a member of ours who was divorced, living on his his mum's sofa. (laughs) He had $30,000 left in a margin loan. I think it was the margin loan that that caused the divorce because he burnt all his money in a margin loan. (laughs) Anyway, he sent us his portfolio uh, last year, and and this is uh, 10 years later, and it's worth $3.3 million. And he absolutely, if you had picked in hindsight a portfolio of stocks, everything from, you know, WiseTech and Appen and Altium and Zero and Afterpay, he had everyone, he'd made a fortune, and he did it with a, a supreme cynicism about our industry. In other words, he'd worked it out himself. So you can do it. So Marcus, building on that question about the, you know, the person in their mid-20s who's earning a bit of money for the first time and thinking about what to do with it, obviously a lot of financial media, especially in the last decade, have spoken about, you know, index investing. There's been a massive inflows into ETFs. I'm interested in your thoughts on if people aren't looking to pick stocks themselves. They don't have the time or the inclination or they don't back themselves to make those individual stock picks. How do you think people should think about putting money away for the long term in the market? You know, would you go down the passive route or would you be looking at more active managers? How would you think about decades to come in getting exposure to the market? I would be happy to start with if you had a significant level of ignorance, not so much ignorance, but a lack of expertise. I'd be very happy just putting it in industry funds because what they're doing is 
providing you with an exposure to asset classes in a fairly cheap, some of them aren't that cheap, but in a, in a reasonably cheap way. And what I would be doing, and I'm not allowed to give advice, but if I had the amount of money I want after tax, after tax is very important. Anyone who's run a business will tell you after tax dollars very different from dollars. If I had after tax dollars, the amount that I wanted in a bank account, I would probably for an easy life stick it in a fund that was fairly bland. Maybe an industry fund. I probably wouldn't actually. I'd hand it to a few fund managers I know who are quite good. But you might just stick it in an industry fund and make sure you know your login, be able to go in (laughs) and get to that page that says cash, balance, conservative, aggressive. And I'd sit there 100% aggressive the whole time because even aggressive through one of those structures is quite passive. You probably find aggressive is 70% equities. You know, we're, we're 100% equities people and quite aggressive anyway. So uh, an industry funds aggressive options, never going to be aggressive enough for me. So I would sit aggressive pretty much the whole time. Then once every five years, 10 years, two years, one year, I might hit cash. The moment I got a bit worried, I might hit cash. So obviously in, in hindsight, COVID, you, coronavirus, you would hit cash. The moment they tell you to in the Marcus Today newsletter and uh, hit cash, that's how I'd be doing it probably. That's the easiest option and not a bad option. As far as um, the fees are concerned, you know, for whatever they charge you compared to having a, a passive ETF MER of point one or point three or whatever it is, maybe you're getting charged point five or seven in an industry fund. I don't know what you're charged. But for that money, you're paying peace of mind. You're paying to have every weekend free, every evening free. You get you, you can log in and have a look how much uh, your money's grown. But basically, you're, you're paying not to have any investment uh, admin at all. Mm. And that's a value. So I, I would say that's what I would be doing is sticking it in some fund and just keep chunking the money in. Just keep thinking about that 35-year runway. Keep chunking the money in. And if at some point you you find, you see, I would actually find a few fund managers I like and put my money with them. But even some of the ones I like are pretty useless. <laughs> <laughs> They're great guys. <laughs> but the volatility, the volatility, once you get boutique the volatility, you know, some of, the, some of those guys are very smart, sell you a great story. And in fact, they're very smart. But they still they still miss basic things. They still think it's about stock picking. They allow their funds to get destroyed in situations like this because they don't exit the market. And now I'd be doing it myself, basically, putting it in my own fund because I I need to manage the big market risks occasionally. But for a twenty two year old, you know, thirty five years you've got, just stick it away and stick it somewhere you can't spend it. So super's the spot. So let's move to Marcus today. As I said in the intro, it's a newsletter with stock market research and a whole bunch of awesome insights. And you also write on the likes of Livewire and all over the place. What was the driving force behind starting Marcus today? Well, I spent how many years? 16, 18 years or so talking to institutional fund managers. So I was a stockbroker. And my job was to entertain fund managers and make sure they dealt through us as a stockbroker. Now, that that involves a whole different level of skill. I have to be able to order the right French wines. 
<laughs> and all, all a stockbroker is really is a, a is the grease in the pipeline between a big broking house and a big institution. And I just had to make sure it was all smooth running. But the research was really good. And and we would market pieces of research around to institutions and some smart, highly paid people with some great ideas. And then when I got into retail broking, I was working for ABN AMRO and we, we listed Telstra and made a fortune. And BZW didn't like the fact ABN AMRO got the Telstra contract, so they bid for us. And I was offered $70,000 redundancy or go and work at BZW. So I took the $70,000. And when I did, Andrew Bell from Bell Securities came across the uh, corridor and said, why don't you come and work for retail broking? So I went to Bell's, started my own client base. I can tell you a few stories about that, but started with one client, my brother-in-law, who had 10 grand and it was the beginning of the tech boom. We made him a small fortune then lost it again. But what I realized going across there was that this was when the internet was just starting. might sound ridiculous to you. The internet was just starting and email was just starting. And I realized there, were, and the info, there wasn't information around. You had to read books. And I realized, goodness, these, these retail investors don't know anything about the stock market. And I'd known, you know, the, the stock market exists to raise money. It's all about capital raising. And we, here we are doing deals in institutional side. And these retail investors just had no idea, believing everything they heard. And so I started through this daily email where the subject line was Marx's ideas, today's ideas, Marx's ideas today. And in the end, I just went, Marcus today. And in capital letters, and the newsletter was born. And, and I discovered the BCC box on Outlook, which in, at those times was high technology. It was six clicks away. And I realized I could send emails to more than one person without everyone knowing who I was sending it to. And, and so I was sending trading ideas out in the morning, and, and these guys at Bell said, can I get that email as well to send to my clients? Because it was creating trades. I did the cleverest thing I've ever done, and there aren't many, uh, which was uh, to say... <laughs> You give me your clients' email addresses and I'll send it to them, but I'm not sending it to you to send on. So I built this database. I had thousands of people on it. And then one day I sent an email saying, if you want to keep getting this, you're going to have to send me $200. And uh, I remember walking down Collins Street with one $200 check a week later, thinking to myself, if I don't get another one of these bloody checks, I'm writing for this blonker for for a year for $200. Anyway, the next uh, week there were five checks and the next week there were 10. And before I knew where I was, it completely overtook the broking. And that's where Marcus Day came from. But it really got spawned out of the idea that I had to tell my brother-in-law how the market actually worked. And I see us a little bit, sorry, I'm wittering now, but I see us a little bit like the Wiggles because the Wiggles started because they, I think one of their, their nieces or, or was ill in hospital and they decided to go and entertain, they were, what were they called, the cockroaches or something, a, a rock band, and they decided to go and entertain in the hospital. They thought, well, we better you know, dress up a little bit. And so they put black trousers on there. I thought, well, we should wear colored shirts. Oh, we'll all wear different colored shirts. Jeff, you can have the purple one. And off they went to a hospital to entertain the kids and, and called themselves the Wiggles. Now, they went to entertain kids. Kids. Do you know who the Hooli Doolies are? Google the Hooli Doolies. Yeah, I've heard oh. of them. I've heard of them. Yeah, the Hooli Doolies. <laughs> Hooli, I'm not allowed to swear. And Doolies. You know, they set out to make money. The Wiggles set out to entertain children, and that's why they succeeded. And so many people came after them trying to make money out of entertaining children in the same way. And we started out, or I started out, trying to educate my brother-in-law and anyone else on that database how the stock market worked. 
and give them some good ideas. And so I feel we started with a pure that we didn't start as many people in MySpace started to make money out of selling newsletters. We didn't do that. We started with a, a very pure tell it as it is motto and, and that persists to this day. Sorry, that was a very long answer to I can't even remember what the question was. <laughs> it's, it's, an in, it's an interesting story. And I'm interested in picking up on, you know, you said when you moved over to the retail broking side, you were surprised at the lack of knowledge in a lot of retail investors. Do you still see that today? Do you still see sort of, I guess, worrying lack of knowledge with a lot of retail investors? Absolutely not. You've got to understand the internet wasn't around in those days. Uh, the It only just started in sort of 98, I think. It only just started, email only just started. The level of information out there, were, you know, and brokers were trusted individuals. You had to have a, a user broker to put on an order, that sort of thing. Online broking was only just getting going. So the level of knowledge since then has exponentially improved. And we have no, we obviously see that in the newsletter because we have to add value. We, we can't just, we used to just provide information. You know, now we have to add value and now we run a portfolio and now we're telling people what to buy and sell and when. Well, you have to add value. But the level of knowledge now is hugely enhanced compared to what it was. And I would say no, from our mem- most of our members are quite sophisticated and those, those that aren't, we have to bring them up to that level. And we do that through education. But no, I would say the level of expertise or educational skill is, is really quite high. It feels like it's almost gone the complete other direction. And now there's so much financial information and financial content out there because of the media. The challenge is really to you know separate the signal from the noise. And so I guess when, when you're thinking about the content that you include in Marcus today and how you, how you really add value to subscribers, how do you think about making sure that the financial content that you're providing is not just more noise and it is actually, you know, really valuable information? To add value, information's everywhere. So we can't just provide information. You have to educate, tell people they, what, things they don't know. And there's plenty of people don't know. Just bring them up to speed on everything. So, for instance, if I was to write PMI index in the newsletter, in brackets, I'd put purchasing managers index. It's a, a survey of manufacturers, you know, how much activity they've got. You just constantly explain things. That, that, so there's always an educational element, but ultimately it boils down to telling people what to buy and when. That's the peak level of value add and getting that right. You get that right, you'll, we'll, we'll have a business the rest of our lives. And, and we reckon we, we're pretty good at that. But it's also becoming, like Equity Mates, it's becoming a community. And we now have a quiz in the, the weekend email and, a, you know, Sudoku. So it, it goes beyond stock market to community. And, and we're developing that community. You know, we've got a ask an analyst session where you can ask Henry about some unknown stock and try and catch him out uh, and you know Facebook group and all this sort of thing so so we're developing a community of people who feel comfortable and safe and looked after and to some extent protected and educated about the stock market so Marcus today's gone well beyond passing information or some newsletters survive on putting a spreadsheet of what stock tips they've given and the annualized return you know that's not that's not no i'll tell them you know that that is what it's about you keep doing that you keep doing that that's what it's about it's not about that you know it's about just as you have realized it's about uh, pulling people together and having a community and trust and a lot of mutual hand holding 
them to us and us to them and and we'll we'll make it through hopefully we'll make it through with a dollar as well i guess before we move to our final three questions that we ask all of our guests we just like to touch on a bold prediction from you that will let us know how you're thinking about the end of 2020 at the start of each year alec and i do an episode where we throw down a bunch of bold predictions and of course they've all been blown out of the water because of COVID-19 but that's okay if you were to make one bold prediction for how markets will end in 2020 what would that be regret oh wow (laughs) everybody will regret getting so upset about coronavirus and there you go that's my bold prediction nice all right well we'll note that Uh, down in which which case they'll look they'll look back and go my god we should have been buying Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So my, right. Trump will still be in. The show will go on. You know <laughs> what a show it's been for the last four years. And if you're right, we'll be for the next four. Yeah, I would guess so. So, Marcus, as Bryce said, we like to finish with the same final three questions. But before we get into that, if people want to read more about you or follow your work, where's the best place that they can find you and find Marcus today? Just go to marcustoday.com.au, sign up for a 14-day trial and see what we do. The newsletter business is about resubscriptions. It's not about subscriptions. You'll find some newsletters ring a bell when they get a sale. You know, their their game is to sell you a, something for a dollar today. Ours is a relationship thing. We've got an over 80% resubscription level. That means everybody stays on, basically, unless they have got some individual circumstances get them out of the market. It's about resubscription. So uh, we don't want people to come on and buy a subscription and then feel it's wrong. Just take your 14-day trial. If you love us, you'll be happy to pay and we'll be uh, chatting to you for the next, well, till your uh, investment cycle uh, comes to an end when you've spent your last dollar, in which case you'll be useless to us. <laughs> <laughs> on that positive note, we'll jump into these final three questions. So the first one is, do you have any must-read books? There's a fantastic book called Stock Market Secrets by this bloke called Marcus Padley. <laughs> it's getting nice. a bit long in the tooth now. It was written in 2008 and I think I've got how many books behind me? I think I've got about 27 books left. Then then I will have sold the 10,000 that I printed, in which case I'll be a bestseller. So I just need 27 <laughs> of you to buy another book. I've always loved Market Wizards because that is a a bunch of traders being interviewed, famous book, and there are books that have followed it and some pathetic books that have copied it. But (laughs) it's about people like hedge fund managers telling you how they do it. And what you take away from that is everybody does it differently. Develop your own method. One, not one method works in investment, lots of different people. So Market Wizards, uh, the other book, which is a bit weird, and you probably struggle to find it, is a guy who was very like me in the US. He was on the radio. He wrote newsletters uh, called Dick Davis. And it sounds like he should be a Superman, really. Dick Davis. And the book's called The Dick Davis Dividend. And he (laughs) writes absolutely boldly, honestly, as I do. Our brands tell it as it is. He tells it as it is about all sorts of things that you know that's true, but nobody says it, but Dick Davis says it. So it's called Dick Davis Dividend. Great. Well, we'll uh, we'll try and find that one. I've never heard of the Dick Davis dividend before. No. Second question, uh, what's your go-to source for investing information? 
information. I'm afraid you, you can't copy this. There are two terminals in the world, Reuters and Bloomberg. If you watch, we're, we're watching billions at the moment. Uh, fabulous. Um, so every, every desk got Bloomberg on it. Yeah. Uh, we've got Reuters. So I could look up any stock in the world to every bit of information you want to know about it is on there. They're, they're, and they're very clever. They're very expensive. It's 22 grand a year, I think, for two subscriptions that we've got. It's probably more than that, actually. But that's where we go. Otherwise, uh, you don't need to do all that because all you need to do is subscribe to the Marcus Day newsletter <laughs> and we digest. We do. We save people time. We digest God knows how much information every day and just give you the relevant stuff. So apart from equity mates, which I think is fabulous, <laughs> where else would I go? I love reading the newspapers. Read the newspapers. It's good. I re- read the newspapers with a big highlighter pen. I love doing that. And I think it's under underrated. And but the idea of sitting with a coffee in a cafe overlooking the, the beach and, and reading a newspaper is undervalued. It's a fabulous pastime. So yes, they've thinned out, but there's only so much you can read in a day anyway. So there's still some good stuff. And then final question, if you think back to your early days, you know, when you were just starting out as a stockbroker, just starting out in the finance industry, what advice would you have for your younger self? I was best man to my best man. He was my best man three times, actually, Martin. Uh, and Martin <laughs> used to uh, hunt. And through his hunting in England, he got to meet all sorts of people. And one of them was the richest man in England. And we went out for a night with him in his chauffeured cars to his clubs. And he said something which was uh, very interesting, which was, if you go and do a degree... You should only go a degree, any education, but a degree. If you're going to go and do a degree, you should only go there if you're prepared not to do the exams, if you follow that. And what he was saying was that you get educated because you want to learn how to do something, not because you want the qualification. And that is something I would say to myself. I did law at university. I had no interest in law. It was actually a good degree. I've got all sorts of skills from it. But what a waste of my time. And I would say to anybody out there, do education because that's what you want to learn to do. And these days, uh, I'm not sure universities really kicking the goals for people. Too many institutions seem to be wanting to make money out of teaching you rather than really having an integrity of teaching you. So it may well be you don't need to go to university because you need to learn to do something that you're going to love and be passionate about and it's going to be part of your life forever. Don't do it because you need the qualification to impress someone in an interview and get a job. I would be learning how to do something because I wanted to learn how to do it. And uh, yes, obviously doctors have to get their degrees and uh, accountants and all the professions and that sort of stuff, but do uh, get educated in things that you want to learn about, not things that you think you should go through the process you know, it's, it's, I employ people who've got degrees in three or four different subjects. By the time you've got honours in law and commerce and marketing, it's like, well, what do you want to do here? <laughs> Pick what you want to do and go and get educated because you love it. And if you love it, you will absolutely kick the lights out. Nice, Marcus. Well, great piece of advice to finish on. It's been an entertaining and fascinating conversation and, you know, we've enjoyed reading you for a while now and I hope our listeners can go and check out Marcus today if they're interested and I think, you know, on behalf of Alec and and myself, just a massive thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. 
Uh, well, thanks, guys. Sorry, I know I've probably gone over. You'll have to chop the uh, chop the uh, bejesus out of that one. There will be no chopping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and anything I can do for you guys, be it content or education or free trials or do favors, you know, just ask. Top tips. We, we, I know your millennials aren't going to buy subscriptions. You know, you know, you just don't seem to be interested in that stuff. But uh, one day we'll get you. So if we, if, we, if we can suck up to you until then, then we'll do that. <laughs> awesome well uh we look forward to keeping in touch and following up on that bold prediction at the end of the year yeah thank you very much all right fabulous it's been fun thanks for listening to equity mates investing podcast a production of equity mates media please remember that everything you hear in equity mates investing podcast is general advice only the content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives specific financial circumstances or goals the host of equity mates investing podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 